Hello, everyone, and welcome to Irenacast. Happy New Year. We are the podcast that is bringing you conversations on the first and third Tuesday of every month from a post-evangelical perspective. Thank you for joining us for another conversation to provoke your progressive Christian imagination. It's 2020, and I'm very excited to present to you an interview that myself and Casey did with Matthias Roberts. He is the author of the brand new book, Out Today, Beyond Shame, Creating a Healthy Sex Life on Your Own Terms. This is a wonderful book, a wonderful conversation that Casey and I were so privileged to have with Matthias. Matthias is also the host of Queerology, a podcast on belief and being, uh, which is named one of the best LGBTQ plus podcasts by Oprah magazine. And it's huge. Matthias also holds two master's degrees, one in theology and culture and the other one in counseling and psychology from the Seattle School of Theology and Psychology. And in his uh, psychotherapy practice, he specializes in helping LGBTQ teens and adults live confidently and fulfilling lives. And his book that we're about to talk about is a reflection of all of those things. And uh, I can't say enough good things about it. And also, because it is the beginning of the year, we have some amazing things happening here with Irenicast as well. So after the conversation, uh, please stay tuned. We have a few announcements regarding a course that we have coming up, taught by our very own Casey on the Enneagram, and a couple other things to kind of get you ready for where Irenicast is headed in 2020. So don't forget to stay tuned after this conversation that we have with Matthias. So without any further ado, here is Casey and I sitting down with Matthias Roberts. Wow, Matthias, thank you so much. I know we've already done the greeting, but we're recording now, so we have to do yeah. it again. <laughs> uh, I'm so excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, thank you. So uh, you got a lot going on right now. You got the book coming out, uh, which we're, I'm excited to talk about. And then obviously you've you've worked for a long time with your show, Queerology. So I guess my first question, and this isn't... I'm, I'm sure out of all the interviews you've done, you've got this same thing because you open your podcast with the same question. I, I know <laughs> I you're, coming. you're already <laughs> laughing. So I, I don't want to be cliche and ask you the same question. So uh -huh. uh, the question essentially is, you know, how do you identify and how has that identity informed your faith? Uh, yeah. So instead of asking you that question, which I'm sure you've been asked many, many times before, mm -hmm. what made you start with that question? Why that question? Yeah. So I, you know, I, I wish no one has asked me this before. So good job. That's, <laughs> <laughs> I, I um, wish I had some kind of big, amazing story about how that question came to be. But literally, like I I'd never made a podcast before. I didn't really even know what I was doing when I started the show. And it was about 10 minutes before my first interview with Jennifer Knapp. So like no pressure. Um, <laughs> just getting on the phone. Someone I, I hadn't met her before. I had like no one who really knew her well. And she was someone who I idolized as a kid. So I was so nervous, but thinking like, I need to start this show with some kind of question. Like there, I want there to be a question that I ask every single person. And it was the first one that came to my mind. And I was like, you know what? I'll just go with this. If I edit it out later, so be it. But it ended up working out fairly well. <laughs> it's, right. it's a, yeah. That's a good starter question. Yeah. So no, no fun, big story. But that's where that question came from. So as you've asked that question to countless guests on your podcast, have you found that your your answer to that question has changed? And has it given you... More insight, maybe, into how people choose to express their identity and how related or unrelated that uh, identity is to their faith. You know, I think the biggest thing it's done is 
it allowed me to be a little bit more flexible and free in, in especially in that answer of how, how do you identify? Because people take that question so many different ways, like for the most part, because it is queerology, most of the folks are identified as queer and, and usually that comes into the equation. Um, but then all the other things that people identify as, I mean, it, it just is this kind of breadth of, of identities. And thus I, I've realized whenever I'm asked that question, I, I never really answer it the same way twice. Like I have kind of my, my major talking points that I, that I go through, but then, then also the similarities and the differences in that next part, the faith element of, of folks who, you know, again, mostly identify as queer, mostly grew up in some sort of religious environment. Like our stories are so similar and yet so different. And that mix of like the the particularity of impact in that, but also the the universality of it and, and the way those kind of interplay. And I think human stories in general are like that. But those two things together have, have been fascinating and I mean, even changes the way that I tend to tell my story sometimes. So I don't know if any of that makes sense. <laughs> no, absolutely does. I mean, we're not a primary interview show, but the, the interviews that we've done have definitely shaped the way that, that we think about things. And, you know, it's one thing to, to read someone's book. It's one thing to follow someone's work, but it's another thing to kind of sit down and and talk to them and, and totally allow ourselves to be surprised by them and not thinking we're going to, you know, somehow have this ego trip of, well, I'm going to be, make their work, you know, even more appealing because my questions are so amazing, you know? Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. That's real though, right? Like, <laughs> oh, it is. <laughs> it's there. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It is. It's so there. I, I know that feeling. <laughs> I think that um, queerness, you know, like when we talk about that, that queerness is sort of like an evolutionary process anyway, right? Mm hmm in my own experience, like, uh, so one of the things I do is I work with LGBT teenagers. They, they are always expanding my mind. I think queerness by nature draws us into new spaces all the time and is asking us to constantly, uh, you know, I'm sure you know this, but like, I'm always coming out. We're always mm -hmm. coming out. Right. Mm -hmm. Um, but in that process of coming out or unfolding, it's like, we're also expanding. Yeah. Ever, ever expanding. I really love the work of, of Elizabeth Edmond, who was on my show a little while ago. She wrote a book called Queer Virtue, where she argues, and I don't think she's the first to argue this, but she argues that Christianity is inherently queer. Mm -hmm. um, and then kind of by very nature, God is inherently queer, kind of for those same reasons of, of once we put up boxes, God doesn't fit into them. There's a queering right. that happens. And I love that concept. So your book... And I know that you, you share a lot of your story. You've shared a lot of your story through your podcast and then also in the book. But when did the um, when did the spark for like, you know what, I got to put this on paper uh, happen? There are several sparks. I, I think maybe the pre-spark, even before it kind of became an idea of a book, was starting to go to a lot of different kind of faith-based queer adjacent conferences uh, and waking up into and realizing within myself. Um, so both with other people and within myself, that just a complete confusion that a lot of folks seem to have around sex, which 
I started realizing this to me, it, it felt almost fundamentally driven by shame. Like I, I, I was reading a ton of Brene Brown at that point and, um, God bless Brene Brown. Seriously though. She's <laughs> she is amazing. So, so reading Brene Brown, I was in my first year, um, in my, in my counseling program for my master's degree. And so all of these kind of concepts of of shame and and defense mechanisms and coping mechanisms and all those things were kind of at the forefront of my mind and i was realizing like none of us seem to know what we actually believe about this or how we're supposed to act quote unquote supposed to act and the sense of we're all kind of stumbling along and so far, there's really no one giving us any guidance. So, so we've come from this world where everyone is telling us, this is what you must do, and this is how it has to look. Moving into a world of where, at least at that time in, in the queer Christian world, no one wanted to talk about sex, at least kind of the people in, in organizational leadership were so scared to talk about sex because if they felt like it would ruin witness with kind of mainstream churches. So no one's talking about sex. We're all confused. There's a lot of shame. And I was like, I wonder what I believe about this. And that's what kind of started this this journey. And I, I really spent the next four to five years, both in my master's degree, but also then once I graduated and started working with clients, kind of really exploring these questions of what is sexual shame how do we respond to it? And, and then what's the antidote? Like, how do we, how do we move beyond it? And that's how, that's how the book came about. I think that that is so true. I think mm-hmm. that it's something that we, that as gay men, we spend a lot of time uh, experiencing and not enough time actually talking about and processing. <laughs> totally. <laughs> right. Yeah. And in that, like, like first realizing it within my own community and within myself, but then also starting to look around and realize like, this isn't just a queer problem. Like right, there, right. there's so many straight folks. There's so many folks who grew up with impurity culture as a whole, who are trying to figure out what the hell do I believe about sex and sexuality? And do I believe what I was told? If I believe what I was told, do I believe it in the way that I was told? Like all of those questions. And, and, and so I wrote the book with a very big goal of it not just being a book for queer folk. I, I wanted it to be feel like a book written for queer folks so that, so that queer folks would feel very safe within the book, but also you know, for for the broader group of people who, who were raised with impurity culture, which is a whole lot of people. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. I mean, there are like, um, I, I have people in my congregation now who will say, I didn't grow up with purity culture, but I did, right? Because it is so... It's within the the culture, and so it's it's like it's imposed on people who didn't even grow up the way we did, and they didn't even know it most of the time. Right, right. And, and I, I think some of that, at least within our culture, and, and I I'm not aware of any other cultures that that don't fit this, but there may be some out there of, of where I think shame and sexuality are almost inseparably tied. And and I say this in my first chapter, like. Um, sexuality affects us at the very core of who we are. I believe it, it is a part of personhood, the ways that we experience or don't experience sexuality. I mean, those both fit into that, that's that space, but that's also the same space where shame hits us too. It, it hits us at the core of who we are. And because of that, I think it's really hard to kind of 
parse out and separate the two when they have become linked, um, which is it's almost inevitable that they become linked within childhood. It's an interesting thing to kind of try to figure out. <laughs> I took a stab. Well, in, in terms of, of accomplishing your goal to make it a broader uh, book that reaches more than just the queer community, a mission accomplished. I think that was one mm. of the things that stood out to me was that for every example you used, it was just everybody's sexual expression was normalized. And I think mm. that that's a good thing. Normalized mm. in the way where it was just, it was, I don't know, take it for granted in a healthy way where this is, and that's not what we're talking about. And that was really refreshing, especially as a former, well, former youth pastor, current straight white guy. Uh, it was... <laughs> You know, it was, um, <laughs> that's your shirt, Jeff. <laughs> that's your shirt. Uh, we should do that. We should put that in our merch store. Uh, <laughs> and as, as a youth pastor, I poured through these books, you know, and, I, and, mm-hmm. and very unfortunately, and with a lot of regret, complicit in a lot of purity culture for a time. But one of the things that, that stood out to me as I was reading your book was that this is a familiar flow. This is a familiar like format. And it dawned on me as I was kind of reflecting on on the book after I read it, like this is – and I don't know if this was intentional, uh, mm-hmm. but it functioned as a satire of all those books that I read. You had the the explanations of it and, you know, where those books, they provide concrete answers on what you are supposed to do and not supposed to do. You create tension in the book. Mm-hmm. Uh, and, and there's a reversal from the – for me, from the opening cover of, you know, Beyond Shame – to the last few sentences of embracing shame and how I, I've been taken through a reversal, been given a sense of familiarity, but, but how the, how the format of the book itself uh, reverses the, the purity culture that we're also used to. I would, I love to say that that was fully intentional, but you, but you <laughs> as, <laughs> as you say that, that, that is, that it's actually incredibly meaningful to hear because I wrestled a lot with how to format the book and and then how to kind of to to guide people through this journey because a lot of the journey is a journey that is so incredibly personal and oftentimes and I, I think I say this in the first chapter too like it's work that we need to do with other people right mm-hmm. and so how do you then take work that you need to be doing in relationship and try to put it into a into a printed book form like that was that was a huge, huge challenge so hearing you say that like thank you that was that was the hope well it was great you know you, you talk a little bit in the book about that idea of creating those little safeties so there, there was there's a familiar of uh, a familiar familiarity i can't even talk tonight but there so. it was it was <laughs> you know I, th- I think that that it was really uh, subversive but also comforting and I, I really appreciated that. And I think that the format had a lot to do with that. Mm, that makes me happy to hear. So, you know, you've talked a little bit about trying to form what you believe so that readers, listeners can really tap into to this message that you're offering to share, right? So what are those things? What are those things that you have found that you deeply believe in? You know, we heard you say that processing this in relationship is important, but what are some other things that, that you think listeners, readers need to know? Yeah, you know, I think I think that the biggest thing is that sexual health can look different for different people. Amen. 
And, and that was a message that was definitely not taught to me growing up. I mean, it, this, this, this sense of sex can only look this very particular one way. And anything outside of that is sinful or not sexual health. And I mean, that's simply not true. Like <laughs> even in that, that very specific one way of, of sexual expression that, that purity culture taught, like I would argue, I don't know that I necessarily use categories of, of sin, but there is a lot of quote unquote sin that can happen even within that. And that, do, that does happen within our churches. So, so all of that to say, to, to kind of flip that narrative on its head and, and say, no, sexual health and, and sexual expression, depending on, on who we are and, and how we're wired to be, will look very different for us. And, and I really wanted to be sure in the book to write it in such a way that invites us all to figure out what that looks like for us. Yes, um, absolutely. So... Yeah. So instead of having someone else define it, um, I mean, even in the subtitle, creating a healthy sex life on your own terms, which on one hand, that sounds, I mean, even as I read that, I'm like, that sounds terrifying. <laughs> and on the other hand, I mean, it's very true. We have to know what that is for ourselves. And it's incredibly important to to figure that out. And I think that that that's communicated well, that that sense of figuring out for ourselves, that, that sense of agency being a uh, a central underlining thread towards the beginning of the book, but then really hit hard once you hit into part three and talking mm -hmm. about, um, you know, the boundaries and communication being the foundation of consent. And even when you talk about, you know, the, what's happening biologically through, you know, sexual contact with people and um, how that was weaponized in purity culture as a way to like, well, that's what the body says. So you have to give into it and therefore you should avoid it. And really using that as an opportunity to inform your agency instead of dictate it. And I really appreciated that. And I'm curious, like, what were some of your experiences, if you're comfortable sharing, kind of bringing you to that point to really to be able to articulate those uh, those thoughts so well? I mean, for me, it was a lot of it was <laughs> this, may, this may go without saying it was a lot of thought <laughs> to try to to try. <laughs> Because I knew I wanted to, for, for myself personally, wanted to try to figure out, like, is there a way to, to have a sexual ethic that feels really grounded that doesn't look like the way that I was taught sexual ethics have to look? So meaning making space for potentially more casual encounters or for more short term kind of experiences. Is there a way to incorporate that into a kind of robust what I would argue faith-based, at least for me, even though that's, that's not necessarily kind of really rooted in the book. It's, it's not, this is a faith-based sexual ethic, but for me, it comes out of my faith. And, and so I had to think really hard around, especially around the, those things that I was taught growing up of, of like the neurology and then the neurobiology and, and all the things that, that I was taught, like, this is what happens within your body. Like you become one with someone and here is how that happens. Uh, <laughs> I'm triggered just hearing that, <laughs> right? Like, <laughs> and, and to really like go back, go back to that research and and see some of the the research that is that has come out since. Of, I mean, it, it both affirms this sense of sexuality and sex itself. They're inherently impacting acts. 
Like we can't not be impacted by our sexual activity. And, 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 and I think even as, as that research comes out, like more conservative folks like take that and run with it. But my question was, how do we take that and kind of name it for what it is, name it as like, this has impact, but then what do we do with that impact? And if we're aware of that impact, then how does that allow us to inform our choices in ways of of being aware of, of what does happen within our bodies and then maybe mitigate or work with those things instead of just saying like, this is a very black and white kind of issue, because again, it's not <laughs> sexuality is very complex. So bringing back some of the actual complexity that's present within it, instead of trying to, to put it into boxes and rules and, and kind of very prescriptive models. Does that answer the question? Yeah. And I think like, so in terms of providing those building blocks and kind of putting the information out there and instead of coming from a place of authority or a formulaic, like, here's what you, here's what I'm telling you to do with this information. Uh, is that, is that coming from your training as a therapist? Cause I would imagine that the most important part of success for someone is to be able to reach those conclusions and figure out how those principles fit into their own life. Mm-hmm. I mean, absolutely. I, I had someone the other day who was telling me who, who read a copy a few months ago and he, he told me kind of how frustrated he was at the end of the book because of that reason, because there weren't any like hard and fast answers. And then he said he he had sat with the book for about a month and, and realized how much thought it had prompted and kind of how things had been sorted out <laughs> in his life since then. And I was like, that's it. Like, that's what I want to happen is I mean, similar to like a therapeutic process of, I can't tell you what to do because then it's me telling you what to do and you aren't actually owning it. It's up to you to figure out and and then to live with and sit in and experience and maybe fail at, but then learn from, um, because then, then it's truly yours and that helps mitigate shame and anxiety in ways that are, that are much more important than someone telling you how it is, telling you how it is often creates shame, owning your own self (laughs) and figuring out what your values are is a primary way to avoid that shame um, or to work through that shame. And, and with that, I guess this is kind of a a question for you and Casey. Uh, As I was reading the first chapter, when you talk about uh, shamefulness being one expression of shame where it's, it's all internal and it turns in to secrecy. And then you mentioned, you know, obviously we have a dire situation in terms of the LGBTQ community and how that internal shame manifests. And unfortunately in a lot of very deadly ways, which is heartbreaking. So I I would imagine that there's, there's a a greater impact when you think about the consequences of that shame based on both of you, but based off of your experiences uh, maneuvering through the world and trying to find some sort of expression outside of that. I would wonder if you two would speak a little bit to, to that and, and, mm-hmm. and, and then why it's so important that we work through these issues of shame. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Do you want to start Casey? I'd love to hear, I'd love <laughs> to hear what you have to say. Sure. So I have often said that 
when I hang out in places like Neighbors, right? Mm-hmm, I, mm-hmm. I know you live in Seattle. <laughs> um, I uh, it was it was clear to me that there were those that that had communities that supported them and loved them, and those who struggled to have that, whether it be because their families rejected them or their church communities, because oftentimes, in my experience, those were m- my friends who were making riskier decisions than I was willing to make. Because the shame that they carried prompted them to say, none of this matters, including myself, right? Right, right. And right. so for me, um, I really love what you're saying about a lot of this should be done in relationship. Like my friends know that when when they have a, a wild night that they need to talk about, they can just text me in the morning and say, can we meet for brunch, honey? <laughs> right, right, right. Um, can we, there's no, there's no conversation that's off limits. If they're going to go out, if they're going to meet up with someone, they they know that they can text me the address of where they're going to be. And I think that that's so important. Mm -hmm. Um, If there is no one we can reach out to, then I'm only accountable to myself. Right. And sometimes the decisions I choose to make on my own are not decisions that I would would prefer to be making if someone saw or knew, right? Yeah, I I agree wholeheartedly with that sense of, of of really being able to even see who has supportive community and and who is struggling. Um right. and, and that's I mean and I think that's of no fault to <laughs> to folks who are struggling. Like that's I right. was that's that right. person and I think still am to an extent of of really like incredibly unsupportive family and having to like figure out what in the world am I doing in in, in this world? <laughs> right. Yeah. You know nothing about this. I wasn't prepared for this. And, and, and I think we oscillate often, and, and I think this is common among lots of people with sexual shame. Like we oscillate between that, I mean, what I call shamelessness, which is kind of a, a sense of I refuse to feel my shame any longer, so I'm going to do whatever I want to shamefulness, which is that point of where shame kind of takes over and we're, we're kind of almost hiding underneath it. And we move back and forth and back and forth between these these kind of positions and it can turn into these kind of vicious cycles of, I know I have to work through, but I have no idea how. Um, right. And there's no one in my life to even be able to have these conversations with me to figure out how to work with this i mean uh, i i'm 33 so you know like uh, no one over 30 right that's kind of a um (laughs) but uh i we grew up without i mean there were very few queer people on tv and a lot of the ones that were were sort of a joke right they were meant to be sort of like these wacky characters and so it's really difficult when you're trying to figure out what your sexual ethic is who do you want to be in the world um when when you don't have many people around you to model something other other right right i mean and even for straight folks like if you don't want to live into the same patterns of your parents or your grandparents it's really hard to navigate something different if that's all you've ever known and seen Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and so um i think that it's really important for us um especially as older queer folks to to continue to have these conversations. And I'm thankful for your book, right? Because um, I can now share it with some of my young adults and be like, hey, let's read through this together. Let's have a conversation. Because this is language that was not given to us. 
and and a lot of at least for gay men a lot of the gay men who could have pointed and shown us the way died right you know they mm-hmm. i believe that um those gay men who were who were hiding out in bathhouses were on the verge of teaching us something really beautiful about having a sexual ethic and learning what it was what it was to be a, a gay man a queer person but it's like we never got to see the full the full film right right yeah we lost a whole almost a whole generation of, of people of wisdom. Right. Um, and yeah, we're left picking up the pieces. And so being able to have these conversations, being able to, to talk about uh, what it means to confront your shame, right. To recognize where it is that it, what it leads you to, you know, these decisions and, and how to celebrate your choices. Like I love asking the question to my friends, like what is your sexual ethic? And how many of them have said, nobody's ever asked me that, or I've never thought about that. And, and even the sense of that in itself can be an evolving thing. Absolutely. Right. Like, again, like I was taught asexual ethic is something that is hard and fixed and <laughs> this is Absolutely what it not. is. And you, and you have to know, you have to know. And, and I think the reality is, and, and I hope this came through in the book is like, honestly, because of how complex sex and sexuality is, we really, we can't know. Um, it's, it's a process of, of figuring things out and a really beautiful process and hard process, like both of those things. Um, we're, we're always unfolding, right? I mean, that's, some of, that's something that we've been talking about a lot on our podcast is mm-hmm. this idea of like, uh, there is a, there's limitless possibilities. And I think that we, we, don't do that in our in our sexual ethic and our sexual selves we don't see ourselves as progressing like you're saying we are stuck in these patterns this is the only way or this is the only way i have known and i think there's a joy in inviting people to begin to say let this unfold you're you are in process you have the capacity to change and what might have been true last week honey may not be true this week you know exactly <laughs> <laughs> Yes. Yes. Oh, so good. So in light of, of all that, how important is this? You know, you talk a lot about uh, in the book about self-exploration, not just of yourself internally, but your body as well. And how how important is that in evolving your sexual ethic as you begin to evolve and coming to that place where you can be both beyond shame and embrace it for, for what it is? You know, I, I I really believe we can only be as comfortable with others as we are with ourselves, and 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 that's not a hard and fast rule, but it it is a, a guiding kind of force in my <laughs> in my thought process. We have to establish trust with ourselves first, and so the the self exploration, both like internally, but also I mean physically, because oftentimes I think a lot of us coming out of purity culture, we're taught like we're not allowed to to do anything with our bodies that might give us pleasure like that wasn't their language um but but things that are pleasurable especially sexually pleasurable taboo off limits sin whatever and yet um i mean one of my core arguments is that sex and sexuality is a force of connection in the world and we can use it not only to connect with other people and disconnect with other people, both of those things. I mean, there's a paradox there. Um, but we can also use it to connect or disconnect with ourselves. 
depending on, on, on how we know ourselves and how we, how we use it as a tool. And so when we learn or to undo some of the shaming messages that we were taught around touch, pleasure, connection, fantasy, all of those things, we're reconnecting and, and integrating, putting pieces of ourselves together. And, and I believe sexuality is a very powerful way to bring about connection and, and trust and, and kind of groundedness. Um, all of those things can happen using the tool of sex and sexuality, even just with ourselves, right? Absolutely. So you also have a background in theology, the master's mm-hmm. in theology and culture, correct? Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, so yeah. If, if if you don't mind, I'd like to get a little theological here. We like to to do that on the show from time to time. Let's uh, do it. I think it was somewhere towards the beginning, maybe the first chapter, you mentioned how uh, it was almost in passing how the Holy Spirit tended to be, especially in a purity culture context, a convicting force, right? Like, is mm-hmm. this the Holy Spirit convicting me? And I, I would imagine that as someone that stayed within the the Christian tradition, that the idea of the Holy Spirit in regard to your sexuality and how the Holy Spirit functions in your life has evolved and how you thought about that. And I'm just curious to maybe some of the the stepping stones in that evolution for you in terms of where, where you feel the the uh, the Holy Spirit's role is and how how you redeem that for yourself from a, from a convicting force to bring guilt and shame to something else. You know, this this may be some of the first time that I, that I put language around this, so this may feel clunky. But I mean, so so I once believed, you know, like anytime I felt like I was doing something wrong, bad, felt shame, guilt, like that that was the Holy Spirit's presence telling me whether I should do something or shouldn't do something, right? The voice of God or or whatever. And I think now to to kind of roundabout answer that question some things that i that i believe about the nature of god one is if we if we take this kind of distinguishment between shame and guilt that Brene brown talks about a lot other shame researchers talk about a lot is is kind of this difference between shame and guilt guilt being i did something bad shame being i am something bad so so the kind of the difference between those voices guilt being a a tool for connection. Usually when we feel guilty, we we have this sense of we need to go to someone to resolve that guilt. It's a connecting force, whereas shame is a force of disconnection. Um, We feel like we have to hide, get away from it. We don't want to be in relationship with folks that we've experienced shame around. And so if, if we put that into theological language, into language of the spirit, I believe God is a God of connection. God is a God of love. So then I think we can almost necessarily say shame is not a voice of the Holy Spirit. So anytime we feel that sense of shame, not necessarily guilt, but shame, we can usually then start asking more questions around what is actually going on here? And and why do I believe that this is something that God is is telling me? Like the shame, often we project our shame onto God and, and we can really start to question those voices of, oh yeah, what what is going on here? Whereas guilt, I mean, I, w- I would still, not in all cases, I would still argue maybe a role of conviction by the Spirit. Maybe not. Like, I, I think I question these, these internal senses way more than I used to. But I, I would, I think, still stake a claim in the fact that the Holy Spirit can convict. But that conviction is is guilt-based, relationship-based, 
Yeah, I would agree with that. Yeah, instead of instead of shame based. So those those are my initial rambling <laughs> rambling thoughts. Right. I really like that that distinction of guilt and shame being a, a, a connect and a disconnect. I think that that mm-hmm. that's con- obviously consistent with your work and and this book in particular. Uh, but just on a, on a practical level, thinking back to my own adolescence and how what shame. Well, not even just adolescence, even now as a, <laughs> as a grown ass mm-hmm. man, you know, how, mm-hmm. how I can mm-hmm. still get into that, that shame spiral and, and, and want to disconnect. So yeah, I think that that's a, that's a really good way of putting it in terms that make sense and can easily connect to our experience. I mean, I, I do believe that the, I, I do believe in the role of the, of the Holy Spirit in the world as a force of love and, and not this kind of woo woo sense of love that I think often kind of comes about when we, when we start getting into these more progressive theologies, woo-woo being the part of me that is still in the conservative world, the, the brain, the conservative brain, saying it, it, love can't be that. But I think it can be. And, and if, it's, if it's a connecting force, then shame has no part in that. Mm-hmm. And I mean, even when we, when we look in scriptures around the work that, that Jesus did, and the work he did on the cross, like there are passages that talk about Jesus taking on our shame and really working with shame. And I think that that's a very real thing. I mean, there's a guy that I know, Stan, his name's Stan Mitchell. He's currently working on a book. He's a pastor in Nashville, um, currently working on a book that, that integrates a theology. Like it's basically a theology of shame, but he's taking scripture and walking through how he believes shame is maybe the original original sin or I can't, I can't remember what it is, but his, his work is absolutely fascinating reframing this, this kind of story within scripture from a vantage point of God coming into the world to, to work with us and our shame and, and shame is all over scripture when you, when you really start looking into it. Right. And they um, noticed their nakedness. Right. And they hid and they hid, which is shame. And then God went and looked for them. That's right. Which it just, I mean, I was never taught that part of the story <laughs> growing right. That's up. Right. The sense of Adam and Eve sinned and God can't tolerate sin. So God turns away from us when we sin. But no, 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 no. Right there in that story. Right. Adam and Eve hid and God came looking. Right. Well, and in terms of the spirit of your book, ask questions, didn't say statements, which, right. you know, reconnected that severed connection because you know it was guiding questions rhetorical questions like i want you to stop and think about the place that you're in right now i don't want to push you further away and i think that that's an important approach for someone who is uh, speaking to someone who is going through a season of shame is is to provide uh provide for them as much as you can agency and how seriously we need to take whatever authority we're given in our work in our life yeah, that's spot on. Yeah. And what I appreciate too that you're inviting all of us into is a conversation to talk about the things that that are being talked about all around us but are not clearly defined, right? Right. Right. I mean, I think we are a culture that we talk about sex all the time and yet we're not talking about it. Right. Right. And so, I think that what you're inviting us into is beautiful. Like let's let's actually talk about the things that matter. Let's actually, in relationship, begin to articulate for ourselves what we need and what we want, but also as, as beloved people in community. How do, we, how do we hold space for each other? Right. 
And, and then, and are we, are we aware of the impact that our choices have on other folks and that their choices have on us, which also that has been weaponized within purity culture. So how do we reclaim the acknowledgement of impact without the shame <laughs> that right. comes from it? Um, and then the fact that we are all connected. Mm-hmm. Mm. And I think that the, the three lies that you pinpoint in your book in terms of, you know, the kind of authority that we attach to scripture, um, and then also, you know, obviously the, the out and out lies that have been told throughout the centuries in terms of, of queerness and then a patriarchy being a, a big one, uh, are, are all kind of the, the most important things to speak of when trying to provide someone a source of, of freedom and, right. and the things that are most important to deconstruct. And I really appreciated those. Um, and quite honestly, as, as, and this is a reoccurring theme in my life is convicted by those things. Cause I benefit from all three of those things as, as a, mm-hmm. as a straight white male patriarchy, it's, it can be easy to fall into it. I bought into the lie of queerness for a long time in my early ministry, uh, mm-hmm. which brings a lot of shame and sometimes shame more than guilt. And uh, I like how you put it when you were telling the story of someone in your book saying that this isn't about who you are, but you're, you're just getting back on track. You're just getting back yeah. on track. This isn't a, the, the, the differentiate between you did something wrong and you are something wrong, I think is an important one and a hard one to embrace individually. Oh, totally. And cause I think sometimes it's easier to beat ourselves up than to, give ourselves that that grace and compassion honestly i think it comes down to compassion it's it's so much easier to buy into those those lies of i will never change like this is who i am i will never change which are voices of shame shame makes us powerless compassion agency kindness i mean again all words that can sound very woo woo but those things bring about agency i mean even in scripture one of my professors introduces to this concept of this idea that, I mean, within scripture, it talks about the kindness of God is what leads us to repentance. It's kindness that opens up that space, not shame, not harsh rules, not punishment, kindness. And if you think about the people in your life that you go to, to share those, those shameful experiences or moments, you're not going to the people who are like royal self-righteous assholes, right? right. Like right. I'm never sharing my one night stands with the, with my friend who has these hard and fast rules about how you should behave in the world. I'm going to the person who has said, I love you no matter what, like whose kindness is, is overwhelming. Right. Because those are the people who then can ask the questions of how did that feel for you? That's right. What was that like? Do you want to do that again? Do you not want to do that again? That's right. Yeah. So. And, and I love you no matter what your choice is. Right. Right. (laughs) So good. Absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, this is, this is great. Fortunately, your, your book has given us a lot to talk about. (laughs) Uh, Good. That's yeah, that's the terror of writing a book. I think of of getting it out there and then hoping that people actually resonate with it, right? Right. Because like, the fear is it goes out and everyone's like, I already knew this. <laughs> so <laughs> is this how is that process? Would you do you consider yourself a, a writer or was this kind of to me this is the best platform to get this message in me that that's burning out there? Yeah. 
No, I, so I have, ever since I was very young, like seven or eight probably, uh, have wanted to write a book and, and wrote, I think a lot of kids do this, just wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote and wrote as a kid. Um, so yeah, I, I do consider myself a writer and like, this isn't the kind of book that I expected to be writing as a first book mm-hmm. <laughs> by, <laughs> by any means, but it felt like the book I needed to write as this kind of a first stab into this world. So yeah, I consider myself a writer, but also the imposter syndrome and and the sense of like, right, right. well, am I though? <laughs> Is very, very real. Right. Well, I, you know, I think that having a book kind of is a, that's a confirmation, right? Like you, <laughs> you're a writer. And if you wanted to do it since you were a kid, it's, it's in your heart, it's in your DNA. So hell yeah, you're a writer. And yeah, it shows yeah. it's, it's a great format, great book uh, and a message that is needed to hear. I think that, and this is just my novice, you know, amateur view of things is, is writing is much less about the talent it takes or the format or the way that you write words, but also a sense of where culture is in the moment and what your audience and what they need to hear and the things that, that resonate or the things that are specific, but timeless at the same time. And I feel like when you talk about shame in the way that you do, these things are, uh, very current, especially with we're in this movement of, of purity culture. And I think that it's been this wave since me too, to kind of shift the conversation in general on how we approach sexual ethics, especially from places of power. And, um, I think that a book like this is a needed voice in all of that because, there's like you two were talking about there, you know, you lost a whole generation, but there's a generation coming up behind you who need this voice because they may not have power now, but because a foundation has been laid in a sexual ethic before they get it, it'll change the face of, of what's happening, especially within this. I feel like this, this niche, which is hard to find this post evangelical ex evangelical space, uh, you know, needs centering voices that aren't, you know, saying this is how you're supposed to act, but here are some foundations to base to figure out who you are in the midst of that. And I think that those are important voices. And I think that the underlining uh, thing that sometimes is unsaid is how we deal with shame and how we Mm -hmm. express so publicly because we have these public forms that we never had before through social media, our sexual ethics. I wonder what you think about, um, Jeff was talking about younger generations. So there are there is a wave of evangelicals who have realized that queer people have lots of excess money because they make choices like not having children and are right. highly successful. Uh-huh. And so they want to jump on the bandwagon and say, oh, we love the gays too. And we want you to look just like us, right? Totally, right. Or we want you to be celibate. I had a young person recently come to me and say, my pastor said I could stay in church as long as I met with this lesbian minister who has committed to celibacy. And it just made me want to like throw up all over the place. Um, And so I do think that what, uh, what you're saying is right, Jeff, that like our voices have to be heard and they have to be louder than the voices of those with more power than us. Right. Mm -hmm. Like these large evangelical churches who are, who are going to quickly realize that, People are leaving left and right because they love their children more than they love their pastor, um, and they want their kids to live healthy whole lives. And so, I just wonder how do we how do we encourage young people to find their own ethic? How do we encourage anyone to find their own ethic? 
I mean, that's, that's the, that's like the question of the book. What is the environment that we need to be able to create and figure these things out? I mean, I, I took the, the approach of, of just naming the paradoxes inherent within sexuality, which I think is a, an incredible place to start, but that could be me. I mean, that's how I did it. So, <laughs> <laughs> but I think by acknowledging complexity and I think being able to do that with everyone but also with with younger folks where i mean even developmentally there's a there's a, a stages that we go through of where we really do want things to be black and white and we're very attracted to that but if we can help model for folks and, and ask these questions of really tuning in to your own self and also the, the complexity present in that i mean in my work with 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 teens and, and i'm sure i mean some of you guys being youth pastors like kids are very responsive to questions and very honest and and very good at connecting with themselves for the most part that they they can work through and they will think through these things and then come up with answers that's right and we can let those answers be what they are for the time being and then realize like they will probably change as time goes on and but but modeling that that's okay and that's part of the process and trusting that voice in you if we can raise them to believe that still small voice is constantly beckoning them to to wholeness mm-hmm. and to trust it and to know that it changes. Um, right. That is essential. And it's true for all of us. <laughs> it is. Yeah. And, and the both and of the still small voice within us, but also that still small voice within relationship. I mean, it, it's, it's that, that kind of both and of... We have to trust that part of ourselves and we have to bring that, what that brings us into, into relationship with our community because that, that confirms or denies truth in, in some very real ways. And closing uh, your book on those paradoxes, I think is an important part of that is, is to, to be able to hold tension because you know it, it seems like one of the the things that that disconnect too is these these strict binaries into what things are supposed to be and how you're supposed to respond to certain things and just the the idea that you flip open that first cover and it says beyond shame and what what you're expecting in terms of oh I can this isn't going to be a part of who I am but then finishing with embracing uh shame and how both of those can live in a body is a hard thing, but I think if more people are saying it more often, then it can become a given thing. Yes. And if we practice that, that posture of, of embracing again, both within ourselves, but other people can model that for us. <laughs> Absolutely. That's right. Um, of, of what it looks like, which, which then requires speaking, speaking our shame, which I don't actually talk a lot about in the book, but I, I think it kind of ties in in kind of an undercurrent of, of just how deeply important it is again for relationship because shame is worked within relationship. Hmm. So, so, so in that expression, I just thinking, what do, what are your thoughts on not only expressing that within community, but then the, the, the very public exp- expression that we have through social media and how, right. how you encourage people to maneuver through that. Totally. You know, I, I, I have thoughts on that. I think, <laughs> you know, there, there's a, there's a, there's a difference between 
and I think I touched on this in, in one of the chapters kind of very briefly, and oftentimes we like to call it authenticity, um, this sense of I'm going to broadcast myself to the world and be very authentic. We see that all over Facebook. But what, what actually is happening to me, oftentimes it feels like a very dishonoring process, almost a process of violence against our own selves when we, when we share things with the world that we haven't become tender to within ourselves and putting it on something like Facebook or, or Twitter. And this isn't a critique, but putting it on those places, there is no actual relationality that's happening. Like, like there's something in online relationships for sure, but there, we can't see each other's faces when we're interacting on social media. So when we're telling something that we feel a lot of shame about or that we're judging ourselves for, or that it may be too vulnerable and, and we don't have another face in front of us to be able to mirror and work with and be in relationship with, it is a form of violence against ourselves mm. because we then can't work with it. Often it can bring like the, the self-critique or the shame can, can come in almost twofold or threefold or fourfold. Um, why the hell did I post that? I wish I hadn't have done that. I'm never going to do this again. Like those shame voices can come in. Um, all of that to say, being in a room with trusted folks who love us and who can hold these things on behalf of us, who can mirror their faces to us, that is how those processes get stopped. Um, is not a social media thing. And those are not hard and fast rules either. Like I think online relationships and... But that's that's a key word, relationship. It's maybe right. not a status posting. <laughs> could be other forms of that and so i appreciate that you're 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 continually conscious of the fact of like this is not a hard and fast rule because i think that that you can't have hard and fast rules that in in relationships because they have to evolve and move forward uh, i just learned a new term I'm, I'm i'm in my 40s now and uh i'm i feel like i'm more and more distant from the the realm of relevancy and uh <laughs> i heard a term <laughs> called uh, uh is it, it dirty deleting have you guys heard of this i don't know that i have oh okay good then i feel a little bit <laughs> younger <laughs> but like that that idea that you can throw something out there and then start and spark a conversation and then because you may get attacked or you feel uncomfortable you can delete it and like you could you could take it back and i think that that's a that's an interesting when we when we talk about connection and relationship like we can't do that face to face you can't just right. take those words back or hide from them because you know you're going to be there and i think that that's a that's a, a powerful thing that can spark guilt which can for some of us turn into shame but if we we engage it on a regular basis then it becomes part of the nuance that we 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 move in the world so i can i throw a curveball at you sure um in talking about patriarchy um and straightness mm -hmm. i wonder your thoughts and feelings about those that have queer experiences but identify as straight in the world mm -hmm. um because in my experience, you want to talk about riddled with shame, you know? And, uh, and there is a sense in which patriarchy says, of course, everyone wants me. There is a sense of entitlement to all bodies, women's bodies, gay men's bodies, who's, whoever's bodies straight men desire. Do you have any thoughts on that? <laughs> yeah, you know, so I fall on the side of, there are many people who disagree with me on this, but I, I fall on the side of that sexuality as a rule here we have been talking about 
not having hard and fast rules. <laughs> this is one rule that I would that I would stake some claims in. Sexuality is fluid for all Absolutely. of us. I don't disagree with that. Um, and thus, I mean, you're, you're talking about patriarchy and, and kind of these other lies around queerness. Like we have been taught that, that sexuality is a fixed thing for, for all of us, right? Even even queer folks, like we tr- we try to find these labels to describe what our sexuality is. Not everyone, but a lot of us, like, I'm gay, I'm nothing else. But when we start allowing ourselves to open up to the fluidity of, of sexuality, and women have a much easier time with this than men do, then, like, I mean, that's what queerness is. It, it breaks those boundaries. All that to say, when we talk about quote unquote straight men who have queer experiences, I mean, first thing is like, well, of course, <laughs> of course this is happening. <laughs> right, right. The second thing is, I mean, what you said, shame, like what are the particular shame structures in with, within their communities, within themselves that keeps them from being able to acknowledge that this is what is actually happening, that this Correct. is what is and why can we not name that within ourselves? And even in the way I'm talking about, like, we have to do that work, too. <laughs> Being able to see and name what's actually going on, because then we can work with it. We're often turned away from that, especially when we're enculturated as, as men within this world. We're taught that we can say what is and what isn't, um, and that our voices and our authority dictate that, even when it goes against truth like what's actually happening so we so we have to do that internal work to realize wait a second just because i say for example like i'm exclusively gay and i've only ever been attracted to men if we really interrogate that and i'm speaking from my own experience because i've started doing this work realizing like maybe that's not entirely the full picture like it's it's descriptive of a pretty complete picture but it's not the full picture um what does that do Often that's terrifying. That's right. I think it's true. I think what you're saying is really real. And especially in my friend circle, as we begin to, you know, age and navigate <laughs> um, what is true and what isn't, you know, um, I've had friends recently, you know, gay men typically uh, have their, especially cis, uh, cisgendered gay men, white men are known for their racism and their transphobia. And it's embarrassing and we have a lot of work to do around that. But I've had friends who've been saying, you know, I've been seeing, I've been dating trans men Mm -hmm. and I don't know what that does, but it's changing my, my perspective, right? Or it's changing me. And I celebrate that. I think it's important for us, as you're saying, we're not fixed. There is no hard and fast rules for any of this, right? Right. And the more that we open ourselves up to the possibilities around us, I think it it brings God delight, actually. Yeah, I I so agree with that. And when we try to sit in those fixed places, they are an indicator of our shame. I mean, if we're talking about shamefulness, that category, chapter one of the book, I talk about the tools of that are control and avoidance. And so we try to control the narrative and avoid the parts we don't like. Absolutely. Um, And and that is a that is 
not a hard and fast marker of shame, but it's a, it's a pretty good indication that there's something going on within us that we're, we're trying to get away from, turn away from, because we're too ashamed of, of what the reality actually is. That's right. So, so I wonder with all that, so as, as you're kind of mentioning the first part of the book where you talk about that, that spectrum of, of, of shamefulness, if it is a spectrum and um, shamelessness, and if, if that is, if we, if we look at that as a spectrum, how much does social consequence determine how fluid we are on that spectrum? So in, in, in the sense of as me, as a straight white male, if I, you know, have an affair with my assistant or I'm, you know, looking at porn secretly or whatever, and it, it comes out in that social circle of evangelicalism, mm-hmm. uh, there's a, there's a high likelihood that I'll apologize and whoever was either my uh, partner in that deviation from from the norm uh, will be the one to be ostracized and I'll find another job or I'll find another platform to get a voice. So there's very little social consequence, which I feel like would continue me in that spiral of shamefulness. However, if I was in a different place in life and I – you know, it, was, it came out that I was uh, gay or trans or believed my gender to be more fluid than it actually was. I feel like the the social consequences in that setting would be far more drastic and that that would mm-hmm. slide me to the other side of this scale if I wanted to continue to embrace who I felt I was and move more into shamelessness. So I'm, I'm curious to if you've done any work or thought about the social structures and how how the consequences within those social structures really determine how we we incorporate or deal with our shame. Totally. You know, I haven't thought about that specifically, but I do have, I mean, with you talking about that, I think it can fit in very easily. I mean, I think I think on one hand, if we talk about shamefulness, so being so full of shame that we're using secrecy, control, avoidance, um, to manage it. Often we're doing that because we know that if our community around us were to find out about this act, we would no longer be allowed within that community. Shamelessness, on the other hand, oftentimes it comes when we have been kicked out of a community or we realize like kind of, fuck it, I don't care what they think. Um, I want to do what I want. There, there's a sense of like, I don't need this community anymore, or I don't want to be a part of this community anymore. I want to go join a different community and, and we test, we try on what that might look like. Both of those things are avoiding shame. I think shamelessness is a little bit more of an honest place in, in one way or another, because we're not lying about what we're doing. We're not hiding what we're doing. I still don't think it's necessarily a healthy place, but I do make the point in, in the book that when, when we're in shamelessness, our, our behaviors between our, what our values are and between what we're doing, they may not actually change, right? Like what we're doing when we're in a shameless position may be in accordance with what our values actually are, but it's the positioning of, of how we're responding to our shame that really puts us in the shamelessness category. Behaviors may not change at all, but it's, it's how we're responding to our shame. Whereas in shamefulness, there's a lot of uncovering that has to happen. 
um, a lot of truth telling that has to happen uh, to even be able to get to a point of, of where we're actually talking about what we're talking about. So one last question you, uh, you have, a well, first of all, uh, for those of you listening, get this book. It's amazing. It's wonderful. We'll have a link to it in the show notes. If only just for like, be prepared. If you really are touched by this book, there is a wonderful resource list at the end of the book with other amazing books from uh, writers and scholars on how to continue to expand your uh, your knowledge in this particular area. So I encourage you to do that. It'll be in our show notes at irenacast.com slash 158. And uh, one of the things that stuck out to me was that you have a, a great list of just acknowledgments of people. You know, you talk about connectivity in the book, and I feel like this acknowledgement section that you put at the end were all these people that you've connected with to help you in your journey towards towards getting this book out here. Um, but I, I am curious at the, the last part where you you name some of the artists on your playlist that have uh, <laughs> that have that have inspired uh, your work and, and motivated you moving forward. So I'm just curious, like, what are some of what are some of your anthems in terms of when you're you you feel maybe yourself moving into a place of shame. Are there are there particular songs that can can thrust you out of that in the moment? Yeah, you know it depends on what the particular shame I'm feeling is. <laughs> I have um, I have a couple. My my go to I have a playlist called Songs of Self Compassion um, that oftentimes will take me out of a shame spiral just because of how. When we talk about kindness and, and compassion again, the tenderness in these songs kind of provide that re- that relational element. If I can't get to a friend at the time or whatever, this music will help. So these songs of self compassion, like so, a lot of it is like Trevor Hall, Katie Herzig. Um, there's a lot of good songs on there. Um, so that's <laughs> that's one. Another one of of when I just need to like buck up a little bit <laughs> maybe, maybe like a self-pity shame and i'm like i need to like i need to get out of the house i have a playlist called narcissism a love story um <laughs> that is is this this full playlist of just like the most narcissistic songs that i can find that are just like i am amazing and i can do this and <laughs> that also helps with the shame spiral it kind of instills it instills a little bit more self-confidence maybe so it really depends. It really depends whether it's this really soft, sad, compassionate versus like, I'm the best. So <laughs> you should definitely share this playlist. I would definitely I should. listen to it. It's... <laughs> I'll email them. You guys can include them. Well, but, if, we, if we get yeah. them in time before this comes out, we'll, we'll throw up a Spotify playlist and uh... there we go. <laughs> All right. Well, Matthias, thank you so much uh, for thank joining us, uh, for being on the show. Again, everyone, if you're listening, check the show notes, get get this book, uh, read it, share it, and uh, incorporate it into your your life. And uh, uh, it's, it's, it's wonderful. Thank you so much for coming. Appreciate it. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode. We hope that you enjoyed that conversation. Uh, I know that we did immensely. Also, those playlists that he's talking about at the end of that conversation, just before the music, uh, you can actually see those in the show notes. So if you go to irenacast.com slash 158, uh, there's links to both of those playlists, which are which are a lot of fun. Like I mentioned at the top of the show, 2020 is going to be a big year for Irenacast. We have a lot of different things planned. And one of the things that we're going to kick off the year with is a six-week Enneagram course taught by our very own Pastor Casey Tennant. 
It is on Sundays from 6 to 8 p.m., and it starts on February 2nd and ends on March 8th. If you are in the Sacramento, California area, if you're interested in this, please email us at podcast at irenacast.com, and we'll send you all the information you need to sign up, including the location and the cost. In this six-week-long introductory course on the Enneagram, Casey will be inviting participants to grow in the knowledge of the Enneagram and allow it to transform themselves and their relationships. Those of you that are regular listeners, you know Casey's passion and expertise in the area of the Enneagram, so this should be a great course. We're hoping to do something down the line to make these courses more available to all of our listeners, either via video or via a separate podcast feed. We're not exactly sure right now, but we are planning to do more of these in the future. So if you're interested in more, stay tuned. We are going to be having a lot of different ways that we can get you the information for stuff that's coming up uh, in the show. So that will do it for us this week. If you enjoy Irenacast and would like to support the show, uh, please consider donating to our PayPal link at irenacast.com slash PayPal. Your donation helps cover the cost of running the show. That's irenacast.com slash PayPal. And to sweeten the deal, Irenacast is a nonprofit organization, so your donations are tax deductible. For more information on supporting the show, please go to irenacast.com slash support. And of course, you can always support the show by subscribing on whatever app you listen on. And if the platform allows it, leave a rating and or review. We always appreciate hearing from all of you that listen to the show. Uh, honestly, makes our day anytime we hear feedback. So, uh, yeah. So happy 2020, everyone, and that'll do it for us this week. Thanks for joining the conversation. 